As a church, our goal, and we say it all the time, is to be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. In fact, you don't have to say this if like, you're a guest or if it's weird, but I want to see if we can do it together. If you, if you put these things in your head, what are the things we want to do as a church? We want to be God-chasing, grace-shaped, love agents. And doing these three things, I think it means living out the life God has prepared for us to live. And when we come together on Sunday, the elements of our service, what they do is they prepare us for that. They help us to build the habits that make us God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. So if you haven't caught on yet, let me just kind of fill you in throughout this series. What we've really discovered is that so much of what we do when we come together on Sundays are really just a snapshot of what we should be doing every other day of the week. We should be digging into the Bible every other day of the week. We should be singing or worshiping God. We should be remembering the things Jesus did for us. All of those elements, they are part of building habits so that we can have these habits, yes, as like a corporate body, as a family, but also as individuals. As we go to our places of business and we go to school and we go to be moms and dads and we go to be neighbors and we go to be friends and, and, and all the other things that we do, that we take the habits with us that we learn here. The habit that we're going to dive into today is a habit that I think either you're good at it or you got to work on it. It's the habit of generosity. Generosity. And the, and the piece of our service we're talking about today is the part called offering. I'll be honest, as the preacher guy, this is my like, least favorite subject to talk about and also one of my favorites because I think there's something about it that has been polarizing for uh, just for, for too long, for, for hundreds of years. I think that once you have a firm understanding of really what's behind the idea of offerings and generosity, there's no reason that it has to be awkward or that it has to be polarizing, but I get it. People have had bad experiences in churches and churches have misused funds and there have been people that have nationally had scandal over, you know, cotting people out of their money in the name of the church and the name of Jesus. But I think the healthy understanding of our relationship with God and how he teaches us to have that relationship with our money as well and the way we use it, oh man, not only is it just good to know, but it can be one of the biggest, most important parts of growing and galvanizing your faith. And it's actually not that hard to see. I'm putting a couple of things on the screen here behind me, and I want to look at some areas where money really impacts our life. Uh, money is a huge thing. We say it makes the world go around. And the first thing that we know about money is that money moves us. And I say this literally as well as figuratively, but literally, money moves us. Like, how many people do you know that live where they live because they got a job? How many people do you know who had to move? Like, I loved my life. I loved everything about it, but I had to move. Why? Got a job, right? How many of you chose the college that you went to or the career that you're in because of how much money you might make? Money moves us. It makes us go places. And uh, here's another thing about money, though. It also holds us back. It can move us forward. It can also hold us back. You ever had that experience? Some of you might not have been able to go to college or get in certain training or live in certain areas or do certain things because you just didn't have enough money. Money can hold us back a lot of ways. We want to do something for our kids or for our family, but we just can't because it's just not there. So it moves us, but it also holds us back. Look at this next one. Money impacts our emotional health. Take this in. You ever been stressed out about money? People have had heart attacks about money, anxiety, Fear, that's one element of the emotion that can bring us. Money can bring us anger, right? You owe me this money or whatever. You ever had joy because of money? Happy birthday. And you get that little card and you're like, I'm sure you bought this card. It's a really nice card, but I hope there's money inside, right? You look inside. That's one of the, one of the number one, as a parent, that's one of the first things you have to teach your kids. Like, pretend you enjoy the card. At least pretend you enjoy the card, then get to the check from grandma, right? Or you win the lottery, right? Woo! Money can bring us joy, it can bring us fear, and so it impacts our emotional health and our emotions. Uh, this is the next one. Money, money or problems with money can lead to lots of problems in life. 
I just think about it. You know, I don't have to like make a list because you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So one time in this church, you can be like, preach, <laughs> you know. Problems with money can lead to problems in life. And think about some of the bigger problems like homelessness or even disease and, and health issues because of lack of access to resources so you can afford to have the medicine you need or whatever. Violence is a problem that's caused by money. There are murders that happen every day because of money. The last one, there's a lot I could say, but this is maybe the biggest one. Money shapes people's morals. It does. We decide our sense of right and wrong often on how much money we have or don't have. You don't believe me. I learned this in uh, watching the movie Aladdin. You know, got to eat to live, got to steal to eat. Tell you all about it when I got the time, right? Y'all know that song? It's like, look, for, for that kid, it was okay to steal. Why? Because I'm hungry. It, it, it dramatically shaped his sense of morality and his sense of right and wrong. Now, I want to leave this list up here for just a minute because this is where God comes in. Not just the bottom, the morals, but all of it. It's where God comes in because God knows us. God knows the impact that money has on our lives. He sees it. He sees this list and he sees an even longer list. And he, he knows our passions and he knows our, our, our likes and our dislikes and our fears. And as we look at these things, I wonder if God looks at this list and, and, he, and he might have some commentary on it. Wait, money moves you? I want to move you. I want to move you. Money holds you back? I never want to hold you back. I want to bless you so that you can achieve the purpose that I created you for. Money stresses you out. It gives you emotional problems. Man, I want to bring you joy. And if you've got stress or anxiety, I want you to cast it on me. Because I care for you. Money doesn't care for you. I care for you. And I love you. Money uh, shapes your, causes your problems. Man, I'm the solution to the problems. Maybe if you want trust in money so much and trust more in me, you wouldn't have as many problems, or the problems that you did have, you would see the other side of it. And the last one, money shapes your morals. I'm the source of morality. I am the standard. Put your eyes on me and learn truth from me. And I, I think that God would have a lot to say about the, the huge impact that our money has on our life. And so it's no surprise to me that money and wealth comes up a lot. In the Bible, as we talk about uh, these things in our life, God has had basically the same attitude on money and resources all throughout creation and all throughout history. Uh, it basically, his attitude is this. Well, it's all mine. I created it, but I would love for you to use all of it for my glory. All of it. Enjoy it. In fact, I made it for you to have. I love what it says in the book of Psalms, in, in Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, the, the earth is the Lord's. And everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. It's all mine. But I want you to have it. I want you to use it. You look in the Old Testament and the Jewish people there in the first two-thirds of the Bible and how God taught them about how to use their money. There's a lot to be said, but probably the most prominent thing, the thing you might think about right away if you know some about it, is that the Old Testament law required that the Jews give 10% of their income. Set that aside for service in the kingdom of God as an offering, as a generous offering to him. And that money would go to the upkeep of the temple and the support of the people, that, that the priests and the people that worked in the temple. And it would go to take care of people who were less fortunate. And he said, set aside this 10% and serve me, which is interesting. This is the same part of the Bible where God says, it's all mine, but I only want you to take 10% of it and set it aside for me. The other 90%, I want you to just live life and take care of yourself and take care of each other. It's interesting. He's very generous in that way. That's Old Testament. You come into the New Testament, which is like the period of time in which we live in the church. The New Testament is a section of the Bible that's got the stuff about Jesus and the early church. And the principle is very similar for Christians. Paul talks about it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. It's this kind of, why do we take up offerings at churches? This is one of the places where it's pretty, pretty 
like straightforward. It says on the first day of each week, every one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Save it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In this specific instance, he's talking about a specific uh, project that he's kind of uh, gathering some money together to take care of another church. But there's that. Now, now I've said all that. A lot of people would look at, at all that, and, and one of the first things that you'll hear is, well, you know, in New Testament times, which is the time of Christianity, never is it commanded that Christians have to give a tithe. And so the 10% thing, that's out the window, is not in the New Testament at all. And, and to those people, I would say, you're right. You're right. The New Testament doesn't talk about a tithe. It doesn't require that of us. Jesus never says we have to do it. The apostles don't say we have to do it. Uh, and, and so as we dive into dissecting Sunday, I think, and we get an offering, I really, I really wrestled with this whole idea. Like, what am I saying? Like, what's my point? <laughs> what am I trying to talk about this morning? Is it, hey, people should put a certain amount of money in, a, in an offering plate or a bucket or support a church or whatever? Like, is that what they're saying? I think we would be asking the wrong question if the question we asked ever was, what amount does God expect me to give? Like, how much do I have to give to church or to anything? Like, I think that's the wrong question. I think you have to ask that question at some point. I think the better question, the one that I want to address today is this. Why would I want to give in the first place? Why? What would even compel me to do it in the first place? Right now, I need a pause. Time out. And take a step aside. I want to speak to a group of us in the room. It might be more or less than I would imagine. I don't know. I don't know what's in your head. But you might be a group of people in the room right now who are like, oh, sweet, it's the day that the preacher's talking about money. <laughs> sweet. Uh, you might be someone who invited uh, your friends to church today, and you're like, man, you got to come check out my church. They're not like the other churches. And then the first thing you hear is like, oh, crap. <laughs> Chris is talking about money. <sighs> he doesn't do this all the time. You might be someone who, like, you've been through that experience where you had a bad experience with church, and you just were like, I, I don't know. Here, here's the thing. I'm right there with all of y'all. <laughs> I'm right there with all of y'all, but here's what I do know. A healthy understanding of what to do with our money, because it's such a big part of our life, is what God wants from us, and he understands us, and he knows us, and so we've got to talk about it. The truth is, most of us are in more trouble with money than we are in trouble with anything else. We probably should talk about it more often. And so what I want to ask you to do is to trust me, if you will. Don't tune me out, please. Trust me. And see if there's anything in this that God can teach you about how maybe you can find some peace and a closer walk with God through the way that you think about your money. And to do that, I always want to take our path directly to the Bible to find the answers to life's most important questions. And so we're going to do that this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, that last two-thirds of the Bible there that's about the Jesus and the early church. Um, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I see there's a handful of guests. You might not have brought one or, or you didn't think to bring one. We've got them under our chairs. Grab one. Use that. And if you need a Bible, you can keep that one. You don't have You just keep it. Walk out with it. Put it in your bag. That's fine. Um, we want you to have it. Also, it'll be on the screen behind me. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and here Paul is uh, teaching the church in Corinth about managing our money. In fact, this is probably the longest section that's been specifically talking about how the church should manage money and Christians should. Uh, the Corinthian church, if you don't know much about them, I think it's a church that we could all relate to a lot. Uh, Corinth was a port city. They're, they're, they're a port city. They were maybe one of the original port cities. And so because of that, they were a hub for, uh, for culture, for commerce, 
excuse me, for education, uh, for all these things. And so much like Wilmington, it's a hodgepodge of a lot of different things. And with that comes some interesting situations, right? If you looked at the books of First and Second Corinthians, which were two, are, are two of the longest letters we have to any single church, uh, you see that they deal with some serious, crazy stuff. Read through it. It's wild. There are parts of First and Second Corinthians that I'm looking at, and I'm like, i got to really study that because I don't even know what that means. Like, it's, they get into some really crazy stuff in First and Second Corinthians. But when you get to this place, it's pretty straightforward. Because when it gets to chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul is giving an update to the Corinthian church about this uh, fundraising effort that he's doing. He's actually working to help another church that's going through some really hard times. And I won't even get into that whole story, but it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. He's called together all the churches around the world and said, listen, this a really hard time happening with this one church. And if you guys could just pull together your resources, anything you can send will help. And so he's basically a missionary coming around saying, can we help this church in this city? And so he's writing to the Corinthians, and he wants to give them an update on how that project is going. I imagine he's spoken to them before, maybe even sent other letters. And so when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1, he starts with this little update, and he talks about some other churches that have been able to get. Check this out, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. It says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Quick aside, the Macedonian churches, uh, there are three that, I, that most people believe we're referring to here. Uh, if you've read the book of Acts, we did a long series to the book of Acts last year. Uh, the church at Berea, the church at Thessalonica, and the church at Philippi. These are all in an area called Macedonia. There's a book called Philippians in our English Bible. It was written to the church at Philippi. Okay, so these are the Macedonian churches. Paul says, I want to tell you what these three churches have been doing as far as this fundraising effort goes. Verse 2, it says that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. Don't miss this. Like these Macedonian churches, the three I just named, they were having some really hard times. They, 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 they had this extreme poverty that they're dealing with. They were actually fairly poor, but that didn't stop them from being generous in this thing that Paul's uh, collecting money for. So verse 3, if you keep reading, he says, So I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Apparently, maybe he didn't even write them a letter. They just said, look, what can we do? In fact, look at verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Have you ever known somebody like this? Like they didn't have much, but what they did have, they shared. Most of us have been fortunate enough to know someone like that. Maybe you're someone like that. Maybe you try to be someone like that. Uh, I've known many people, people in this room right now that I could point out by name, but I, I won't because you won't, wouldn't want me to do that. I think though, um, early in my marriage to my wife, Lindsay, about a couple that just, they just, they oozed, they oozed this mindset from their whole person, George and Diane. When I lived in Virginia, my wife and I were newlyweds. George and Diane were, they were very much mentors to us. They probably don't even really realize it. But uh, let me tell you about them. Diane was a, a stay-at-home homeschooling mom of five children. But you've ever had one or two children, you know, man, that's a full-time job. This lady did five kids, and she's really good at it. George uh, was the breadwinner. They were a single-income uh, home. And George, in addition to being a really godly man and a really great dad, he worked his tail off to provide for his family. And so they may not have been rich in the world's eyes, but man, they were just good people. And I could say a lot of words that would describe them. Uh, but the one thing they did really good was they shined the light of Jesus in everything that they did. And I could think of some words that really describe George and Diane, faithful or, or loving or kind or all these words. But one that really rises to the top for me is generosity. They were generous people. And I could give you probably dozens and dozens of examples of how they were generous. 
But there's one that just screams in my mind every time I think of generosity, every time I think of George and Diane, I think of this one instance. Uh, we were a young couple. We, were, um, we went to the same church as them. And so uh, often after church, uh, George and Diane would have us over for lunch or they would feed us some other time during the week because we, as little money as they might have had, we had like way even less. And so they were like, you know, having us over. And we knew there was always, despite the fact that they had seven mouths to feed, there was always extra seat at their table for us, and it was, it was really so amazing to hear that from them. And I remember standing in their kitchen one Sunday after church, and they invited us for, over for lunch. I believe we were having Sloppy Joe, and it was good. And we, we were standing there, and, and they had you know, the, the habit of standing and holding hands, and George would pray. And I, I don't know what all he prayed for. I don't remember all of it, but I will never forget this sentence that he said in his prayer. He said, God, thank you for our friends and for giving us just a little more than we need so that we can share. Did you catch that? Thank you for our friends, and thank you for giving us just a little more than we need so we can share. I really believe that was the first day that I really saw the heart of God in generosity. A man who had no idea what he was teaching my young wife and I and his five kids, he was just saying a prayer, and he was speaking from his heart. The heart of God's generosity, Paul says about these Macedonian churches, he says, I mean, they get it. They get it. They, they understand that giving isn't about the number of commas that you have to write in the check. It's about the heart of the person who's giving. It's about their conviction and, and their mindset towards God. And he uses the generosities of these three churches to teach us something, and the Corinthians something. So we see that in verse 7. Really, this is kind of the, the crux of everything that I think he might be teaching. In verse 7, he says, but, look, since you excel in everything, I'm going to say this to you too. Pretend like Paul's writing it to you. Since you excel at everything, you're doing good in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in complete earnestness and in the love that we've kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. And it's where this revelation hit me this week as I was studying this and what really it was that I really feel like God wanted us to hear today is this, that generosity, specifically our heart about money, not the amount, it's part of our spiritual growth. It's right here in this list with faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and love. And you think, like, if I'm going to grow spiritually, I need to work on my faith. I need to work on loving people. But right in this list, in growing spiritually, it's our attitude and it's our heart about our money, our resource, and what God has given us and how we use it. And so there is a major connection. And when I think about money, I think, like, there can't be a connection between spiritual stuff and money. Because if, if I think of what's the most materialist thing I could think of, it, would, it might be money. But there's a total connection, and this is why. Because an ungodly attitude about our money can be a roadblock in our relationship with God. An ungodly attitude about our money can be a roadblock with our relationship with God. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about this a lot. He doesn't command Christians to give a certain amount. What he says is something like this, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You want to know what your heart's on? Like, what's the thing that's most valuable to you? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And one time he was talking to this guy. Uh, we don't know his name. He's actually identified as the rich young man or the rich young ruler. And so all we know about him is that he was rich. Rich enough that, like, that's all that we need to know, okay? And this guy comes to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, man, I really like what you're teaching. I just need to know, what's it going to take for me to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus looks back at him and said, man, you know what? You're doing really good. You're doing really good with your faith. You're doing really good with your knowledge and your understanding of God. Now here, you're, you're just lacking one thing. This is in Luke 18, 22. He says, you're still lacking one thing. You need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasures in heaven. And then come follow me. I don't know about you, 
but I like my stuff. And I'm thinking, like, if I sell everything I have and give it to the poor, then I'll be poor. That doesn't make sense. Who's going to take care of them? If I get all my stuff away with it, and here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say that the problem is with this guy's money. He doesn't come right out and say that at all. In fact, there are many people throughout the Bible that we see are wealthy. And throughout the, the history of Christianity, people who are wealthy, who because of their wealth have been able to bless the kingdom of God and do all kinds of great things and advance the gospel and shine the light. But, but what Jesus is saying to this guy, and I think what he's saying to us is like, it is so easy for us to trust our money instead of trusting God. How many times have you hit a problem? You're like, no, if I could just pick up a few more hours at work, I think we could fix this. If I could just pick up a few more odd jobs, I think we could fix this. I mean, if we could get the car paid off, golden, we're done. No more problems. And how many times have you got to the end of that empty promise and been like, oh, man, I must have been wrong. Just a few more extra hours. Just another job. And Jesus says, no, look, I can give you the answers you need. But don't let your money stand as a roadblock between me and you. If you want to know generosity, you don't have to look any farther than God himself. Paul keeps talking to the Corinthians. This is in verse 9 now. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might also become rich. Like, you don't know generosity? If anybody was rich ever, it would be God, right? Because the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Lord's in everything. Like, he's like, it's all mine. Anyway, so like, who, who do you think you are? A billionaire? <laughs> yeah, I got mountains. <laughs> you know, like, I got it all. And, but he said, I, I will give up all of that for you. I will give you my very life. Jesus came. That's what we talked about last week. If you were here, if you missed it, I'm sorry. It's on the podcast. I hope you'll catch it. But uh, we talked about communion. And the whole idea of communion is, re- communion is remembering that Jesus gave it all. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that you know, he didn't consider equality with God something that he should hold on to, but instead he let go of it and he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and becoming a man and being obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. God gave it all. Generosity is the heart of God, and I think one thing he wants from us is that we be a people that have the same heart, a generous heart. People who are wanting to share, who give people the clothes off our back, if that's what it is that's going to truly help us worship God and love people. And so, you know, our church is at a really cool place in our history. We're a baby church. Uh, if you're new today or you didn't know this, our church is not even four years old yet, okay? We're like three and a half years old. We're babies. If you had children three and a half years old, it's like, man, slobbering, and you're just figuring stuff out, right? And like, that's, that's us. <laughs> We're the slobbering church in Wilmington. Um, how true is that? That's pretty true. And so... The people who are laughing, they laugh because it's true. Um, but as a young church, it's really cool because I can do something right now. I can stand on the stage, and I can give a report similar to the one that Paul gave uh, to the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches. Because do you know that there are churches all over the state of North Carolina who regularly, many of them monthly, generously give to our church to help us do what we do? They do, to do the ministry, to go out and serve the city the way that we do and be involved in your families and to rent this facility and to pay the bills and do that kind of stuff. Like, we have that. Throughout our state, there are about 10 other churches. I, I, think, of, I think of the church at Wilson called Stony Brook. I think of the church at, uh, at Kill Devil Hills in the Outer Banks called Sunrise. I think about the church at Washington called First uh, Church of Christ. I think about the church in Williamston, North Carolina called Macedonia. I think of some churches in Newburn called Two Rivers and, uh, and Broad Creek. I think of a church in Raleigh called Life Point. I'm going to miss so many. I'm just saying off the top of my head. 
I think of these churches, a church called, in Crestwell, North Carolina, one of the smallest little places in the state of North Carolina, but a church called Scuppernong. Check it out. These churches, they call me regularly. Their leadership, they text me, they email me, they call me. And they, and they just like the churches in Macedonia, they, they eagerly ask, what do you need? How can we help you? Is there anything we can do? Because they see what we're doing. This is what's so humbling. Many of those churches are not any bigger than we are on weekly attendance. They got needs of their own. But they see the light of Jesus shining out of you guys. And they want to be a part of that. That's the heart of generosity. What's really cool is because of that, we've been able to share the light of Jesus in this city and, and, and grow the kingdom of God by making disciples. Almost 50 people from this, this family have given their life to Jesus in baptism in the last three and a half years. That's amazing. We're going to do that. And then what I'm seeing is that this generosity thing becomes contagious. Just in the last six months alone, I've seen individuals in this church step up to help pay the bills for other families in this church or help them get jobs. After the floods from Hurricane Matthew, I know of two specific families who stepped up to help families who had lost everything in Lumberton. People who stepped up, it was around Christmas time, and just said, what do you need? I'm going to buy you all the clothes and shoes and things to kind of restock your wardrobe because you lost everything. And here's some food. And you know what? Here's some Christmas presents because it's Christmas. I think of a family who stepped up uh, to help a single dad provide for the needs of his kid. Giving him all uh, the most amazing Christmas this kid's ever had. These people don't have a lot. But it wasn't just toys. It was, it was shoes and it was clothes. And it was the thought that someone loves me. I know of a family who got a, a bonus and realized that there was another family in the church who realized that, that they could use it way more than they could. <laughs> Gave their whole bonus away. And I, I'm in this unique situation as a pastor. Like, I only know about these things, not because people are putting it on their Facebook page and bragging about it, but because I'm in this unique position where people come and they let me know about needs, and then other people let me know, man, I want to I do something. Can I do something? I'm like, ah, I'm just going to connect the God, dots. And then I get to sit on the front row and watch God do his work through you. And I bet there are dozens of other situations that I don't even know about. And that's fine. And these are spontaneous acts of generosity. They're just happening because it needs, you know, we do, we do uh, organized acts of generosity that I've seen happen. Did you know that over uh, our Christmas time, we had our Christmas angel tree, that um, 15 kids living in poverty right here in this area were able to get the joy of a Christmas gift because of you guys. Right now, there are over 40 kids throughout the world sponsored monthly through Compassion International getting all their basic necessities for their, their survival because of this little church in Wilmington who's stepping up saying, you know what, I got just a little more than I need so that I can share. Wow. And that is the contagious light of the heart of God in something as simple as dollar bills. And suddenly it turns the tide of what money does in our life. And it changes our heart from letting money be a roadblock between us and God to let it be a conduit for us to love the world. Did you know that our church, this local church, our, and our local offerings, we, you know, we collect an offering every week, and, and, and 10% right off the top, our leadership decided before we began, 10% off the top is going to go into serving the kingdom of God. Not straight into this, but somewhere else. 10% right now, we're giving it straight into church planting through two organizations that we trust and we've, you know, done relation, we've had you know, a relationship with and helped us get started, and planting churches all throughout the state of North Carolina, right off the top. And then I look, at, at more specifically, many of you guys have met uh, Roger Burns. You know Roger? Roger's come here a couple times to preach. He's the guy we've talked about that's planning a church in Jacksonville called Restore Church. I want to tell you something about Roger. Roger's church, uh, they've been building their core team. They've got about 30 people right now gung-ho for starting weekly services and having a launch. And in about 49 days, 
they launched in weekly services in Jacksonville. Can you believe it? Some of you guys met Roger like two years ago when he just had this speck of a dream of moving to Jacksonville and starting a church. And it all happens because of the generosity of other churches that are pouring into that. But check this out. I want to take another step because as I was studying this passage, I just got sucker punched by God. And I started praying, and I began talking to some of our other leadership. And so I want to let you know about something that, as a church, I want to encourage you to pray about and do. First of all, I need to let you know this. On, on uh, February 19th, just a few weeks away, we're going to have a Sunday here called Restore Sunday, okay? Uh, we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, Roger's going to come in and preach again. Mike, their worship pastor, is going to come and join our band, and some of their musicians are going to play. A lot of their uh, core people are going to come and serve with our volunteers and so that they can kind of get a feel for what it's like to be mobile church. Restore Sunday. They're calling it Restore Takeover in uh, Jacksonville. I'm cool with that because we want let them have an opportunity to know, like, man, you can do this, and you guys can encourage them and pray for them, and, and, and that's pretty awesome, but as we've been thinking about this, I, I want to take it up a step more, so we talked, and we prayed about it with our leadership, and here's what I'll let you know, and I'll encourage you to be a part of this. The week of February 19th, we've decided that as a church, we want to give away 100% of our weekly offering to Restore Church, and say, look, God has blessed us. Can we bless you? Check us out. I, I want that to be the biggest offering we ever have so far. I want it to be a week where you go home and you're like, man, is there something I could sell? Is there some stuff I could set aside to support the kingdom of God somewhere else and let God's kingdom grow and expand the generosity thing to continue to roll because it's the heart of God and it's what God did for us and he gave it up for us and we can give up for others because we don't want it to stand as a roadblock. And so you think about that and you're like, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because I'm not really good at math, but I can tell you this. As a church, we're, so, we're young, and we're not su- financially self-sufficient you know, right now. Like, we still get help from outside. And so you look back, if you were a financial planner, and you'd be like, that doesn't sound like a good idea, Chris. Um, like, you would think that, uh, yeah, you would want to keep your money so that you don't uh, die. <laughs> but that's just math. That's math without faith. That's not understanding the economy of God. Because God's math works very differently. Paul talks about it more. We're going to skip over to chapter 9. This is the last thing we're reading from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Listen to this. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So many times, you know, a preacher has abused this stage somewhere and beat people, made you feel guilty. No, God says, look, decide in your heart, what are you able? And what would make you have joy? And he says in verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, listen to this, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In God's economy, money isn't a bank account like mine and yours that seems to just keep you draining to pay the bills. In God's economy, money is seeds planted in the garden of God's kingdom. And it grows. It grows and it produces blessing. I don't believe in what people call the health and wealth gospel. That's a weighted term. You might not understand it the same way that I do. But basically, I don't believe that if you give X amount of money, X amount of money, X amount of money, God's going to give you a Hummer and a private jet and an island. Like, I just don't, I, I don't see that in the Bible and I don't think that's the way that it works. I think it works more like what my friend George said in his prayer. God, thank you for our friends. and Thank you for giving us just a little more than we need so that we can share. So we have offering time each week at church. And the question that might come across your mind as you do that is, what should I do? 
What should I do? And the cool thing is, I, I don't have to tell you that. It's not my job. <laughs> it's between you and God. I want to give you some things that I use as a guide, okay? First is this. Don't let money be a roadblock to your faith. Don't. If you've been skeptical about church and money and all that, here's what I'll tell you. I say it every time, and I'll say it again. You don't have to give money here. But, but don't let money stand in a roadblock between you and God. Find something else in our city that is Jesus-centered that you could support, that you could help, something like Vigilant Hope that helps people downtown serving in, in, in an area with homelessness and extreme poverty. But don't let money stand as a roadblock of your faith. Don't hoard money for your kingdom, but invest it in his. That's the first one. Don't let money stand as a roadblock in your faith. The second thing to think about is this. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. For many, you hear the idea of the tithe and 10%, and you're like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. I cannot do that. I'm going to tell you something. You can. You know how I know? From experience. I have never been a rich person, and I will not ever stand on the stage and tell you numbers about my personal finances. That's inappropriate. But I will tell you that my wife and I committed a long time ago to, to live the heart of God in our generosity. And that we want to be a tithe plus family. And I can tell you this, God has always provided. And there have been times where we're like, well, should we do this? And, and I probably could step off the stage and I bet another dozen of you could get up here and say the same thing, if not more. But here's what I encourage you to do is start somewhere. It's the reason that Paul says, see, you set aside an amount in, 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 uh, that's consistent with your income. Like, but start somewhere. Make it deliberate. Don't give God the change out of your couch. Give him the good slice of pie out first. You ever go get the slice of pizza and like they open up the fresh pizza and you see that big slice and you're like, that was mine. <laughs> I'm getting that. You ever walk up and get that last little shriveled piece? Which one shows that somebody cares about you more? God says give it off the top. Make a decision. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. And the third thing is this. This is the hardest thing. And this is why uh, our relationship with our money is part of our spiritual growth. Aim for the heart of God. Don't aim to be the biggest giver. Don't aim to fix all the problems of the world through generosity. Aim for the heart of God. And, and the way you do that is you go big. You go big. My last challenge is that if you want to build the habit of generosity, shoot for the sky. If you sow generously, God will cause generous growth. And in the Bible, we see people selling their possessions to give to the poor. I've got a friend who is a missionary in uh, Southeast Asia, and he got a call. Um, it's expensive to live there and be a missionary, and he's translating Bibles and all kinds of crazy stuff. And he got a call from a generous donor who said, hey, I would like to completely fund your ministry. And the economists would look at that and say, well, sir, that's stupid unless it's a really good tax write-off. But this guy gets it. Go big. Shoot for the heart of God. Wow, I could do this. I'm going to. The heart of God works on God, God math, and it's faith. And so I don't know where you are with this, and you might be hearing this for the first time and being like, I just don't even know what I just walked into. I don't want you to know. The heart of God truly comes from this verse we read from chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And let me tell you the richness he promises. It's not a full bank account. And it's not the biggest house in the neighborhood, and it's not a new boat, and it's not a new gun, and it's not the whatever else you got on your checklist. The gift, the richness he gives us is a relationship with God the Father. The opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and live in grace. The chance to shine light in a city where there's darkness. The chance to have community with a family of people like you guys that I can say, man, they got my back. That's the richness that God gives us.
And these aren't just platitudes, and these aren't just things to say to make us feel good so we can put them on postcards. This is God math. This is God saying, I'm laying down everything for you so that you might have my love. Let's be a generous church, guys. I'd love to pray for you. God, you're good. Uh, Thank you for your heart of generosity. Without it, I mean, we'd be pretty messed up. I thank you for the time of offering that we have each week. That's an opportunity for us to to practice the habit of generosity. But Lord, I pray that more than a a checklist or a religion or something done out of an obligation, Lord, that we can be people who say, all that I have is yours, God. What can I do to bless your kingdom and let more people come into your light? Lord, help us to be that church that does that every time. Put others first every time. Love people every time. Be generous every time. Lord, as we're about to celebrate the generosity of Jesus in communion, I just pray that you can help us to remember that your heart is a heart that gives instead of keeping. Thank you for that. I don't know what we would do without it. I love you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.